hate that voice. Um, all right, I'm back here again with Kevin McKernan. Kevin's been on the show before, uh, knows quite a lot about genetic science, knows actually quite a lot about patent law. And so I've asked you here today to talk about this, this video that's kind of gone viral with um, David Martin and uh, Reiner Fulmich. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, basically, uh, David Martin is, is in the business of looking at intellectual property, and he's, he has you know, closely looked at all of these patents that have been filed for decades. And he's got a bunch of claims in this, in this video and then in the document that he, that he links to. Um, but his, one of the main claims is that what we are now calling the novel parts of, of SARS-CoV-2, the things that, that define it as a novel virus, were actually patented many, many years ago. And that there are multiple patents on these components. Um, so I, I wanted to ask, oh, well, my first question, first of all, welcome to the show again. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for coming back. Um, and my first question to you is, what does it mean to patent genetic material? What does it mean to patent a genetic sequence or, or a genome? So that, that's a good question. That the, the definition of that has changed over time. So um, David is mostly pointing at 2000, a 2003 patent. Uh, there's a lot of patents he speaks to, and I, I can't touch on them all, and it'll probably go beyond the scope of the show. But um, he led off that Reiner interview speaking about a particular CDC patent on the SARS-CoV-1 genome. This is not the current one mm -hmm. in circulation, but the one that was found in 2003, 2004. Um, and the CDC did, in fact, file a patent on that. Um, the claim language in there that they filed on was an isolated nucleic acid. And that language we'll touch on is, is fairly important. Um, now, there is some case law around this. I was involved in um, dealing with a lot of this case law because we had a clinical sequencing company sequencing kids for epilepsy and mitochondrial disease. And this was after the Human Genome Project. And suddenly there was 4,000 gene patents all over the place. And, and it was difficult to navigate all those. And, and many may be aware of the space with a particular household name known as Myriad. Myriad had patents on the BRCA1 gene. And so this got very controversial and eventually went back to court. And the scope of patent eligibility changed with some work from Justice uh, Thomas Clarence. Uh, but that was in 2013. So um, the, the scope of what is patent eligible in that front has narrowed, but it didn't narrow as much as the news may have led it to believe. I think a lot of people left the news thinking, aha, Myriad's been overturned, genes are no longer patentable, but he really only narrowed it very, very slightly uh, in his language, and that if you man manipulate uh, the material, it could be deemed patent eligible under the U.S. Um, code 35101. It's a patent code. When, when you go through patents, there's usually three forms of rejections you can, you can, you can get in the process. There's the 101, a 102, and a 103 uh, rejection. And the 101 is all about, is it even patent eligible? Because some things aren't patent eligible. For instance, gravity isn't patent eligible. It's a, it's a phenomenon that you can describe, but it doesn't mean that you can patent it. Um, but these natural sequences, um, I think the case law in Myriad, it really came around a couple other um, preceding court cases. Uh, one was Park Davis, where they were purifying adrenaline, and because they had made adrenaline clean, they had made it more functional than what you could get, you know, crushing out of nature. Uh, that was one case law that was cited. 
uh, and it was sort of a learned hand argument that uh, you had to learn how to craft nature into something that was patent eligible, and so that was awarded. Uh, what followed on from that was some microbes that people developed to eat oil, and this was a genetically modified microbe uh, that it's a case law known as diamond versus chocobardi. Uh, and that expanded the scope, saying that you can modify a naturally occurring um, piece of DNA and, and have it be patent eligible. And that, that, that proceeded. Uh, now, I'll just say, I'm not in agreement with any of this stuff. Uh, I, I, I agree with David. None of this stuff should be patentable. Um, the fact that it is, is just all gymnastics with intellectual property law, which I'm not a big fan of. But um, he's been making the case that what the CDC did, did was illegal. Now, the CDC has done a whole lot of things that are legal during the pandemic, and I think this is probably the smallest thing there. <laughs> In fact, I don't think there's a very good you know, argument from a patent law standpoint that what they did was illegal. You could, you could probably hold them to task on, on 100 other things. But uh, So there's this 2003 patent um, where they filed on this. Now, the interesting thing about that patent is there was a race to sequence that. Uh, a gentleman named Marco Morrow beat the CDC to it, uh, but he, fought, he was in Canada... And there was some discussion about uh, University of British Columbia filing on his sequence. He as an inventor bowed out and said, I'm not, I don't believe in patenting these things. Uh, so he stepped himself off the patent. I, I don't know where that one went. I haven't followed up on it. But that, that, that released the information prior to the CDC having put any of the data public. So, so that meant that it, be, it became in the public domain then? Yes. Yeah, so th there's probably some challenge uh, here that, that if, the, if, if this patent were ever really prosecuted, I would imagine Marco Morrow's information would be brought to challenge the date of filing at, at the CDC. Um, and what's important here, I do have a thread on this on, on Twitter, people can reference for some of these um, references, but Canada at the time, I believe was a first to file jurisdiction. So the first person to file wins. The U.S. back then was a first to invent jurisdiction. So if you, if the CDC may, may have documentation that they had the sequence a few days before Marco, but we don't know, um, in which case they could claim a slightly earlier priority date than their filing date. But their filing date uh, was a little bit after uh, what we saw in the news, at least, of Marco Morrow putting the data public. So there could be a contest there. There could be some type of um, you know ex parte re-exam that would go and invalidate the CDC patent, but no one's done that in 10 years. And the patent is still in force today. Um, Hong Kong University also did some work on this as well. And they they have some you know statements I've run a line suggesting they may have been the first, but they're trying to get the quality up a little bit and um, they put out a you know a higher quality genome. But that, that, that would all get resolved in any type of um, court case if anyone really wanted to prosecute this thing. Um, I, I will point out as well, and the, C, the CDC did put on record that they did this defensively, that they wanted to get it patented so that it would be remain in the public domain and they planned never to prosecute it. And I've not seen any evidence that they have. Um, so uh, that's also a single claim patent. And usually when you see that, that's, that's usually a sign of a defensive patent that someone, you know, they're really serious about it. They would have put in the patent like 10 other claims saying, you know, a PCR assay or another way to, to measure it. Um, they, they did file on a PCR assay separately and later, but um, the first patent was really thrown together quickly with a single claim and the claim language uh, stated an isolated nucleic acid. Now, the reason the isolated language is important is that starts to hint at Myriad. Um, Myriad went through the case law uh, where they were trying to claim that their process of amplifying the genes out of the genome to sequence them was an isolation procedure, very analogous to Park Davis purification of adrenaline. 
and Justice Thomas agreed with them to some extent uh, and, and basically shut down patenting of natural DNA. But he mentioned in his statement that the process of making cDNA is still patent, is still grounds for 101, it's still grounds for being, it doesn't guarantee your patent eligibility, but doesn't knock you out because you have man manipulated the DNA enough to change it so that you can, um, uh, that, you know, you can sequence it or clone it or, or whatever. Um, I, I think what David might be missing in all this, because he's been referencing the fact that patenting any gene has been illegal from the start, and it's just not true. There's lots of patents out there that are still enforced that have variations on what they've done to the DNA in order to patent it. Um, but I think what he's probably missing is that SARS-CoV-1, in order for the CDC to capture that and sequence it, it was an RNA molecule. And in 2003, you had to convert that into DNA and make a cDNA in order to sequence it. Uh, and so their claim, I believe, even today is myriad proof that it that even if it were challenged saying, hey, you got this in 2003, it, 2013 narrowed the scope of this. So we're going to challenge you with the most recent ruling. I think they'd probably still survive because they've made they would, some modification. Because they made some modification. I doubt they would bother to prosecute it uh, because uh, I don't think it's very pertinent to SARS-CoV-2. Um, this is all SARS-CoV-1. Right. Um, right. So. Um, and, and the reason I don't think it's pertinent is usually when these patents are pertinent, uh, you tend to see them listed on the products that are licensing those patents. Uh, it's usually, you're usually obligated as a person who licenses these patents to, to write the patent name on the product that you're selling to say, hey, we license this and this is the patent you should go look at if you want to, if you want to license this. I can't see any of those patents listed on the the PCR kits that are being sold, for instance, you would think if this were truly hindering research in the field, the 62 million kits that IDT has sold would have that patent number listed on them saying this, you know, this kit is designed in accordance to and, and is utilizing this intellectual property. Um, I don't see that listed on their data sheets. And I also don't see it listed at the biobanks that sell the genome itself. So and, and sorry, we're, when you're talking about the PCR tests, you're talking about the PCR tests for SARS-CoV-2 or? Exactly, for SARS-CoV-2, okay. yes. Okay. Yeah. So no one in the SARS-CoV-2 space is paying that patent any attention. Uh, and also, the if you want to actually go and get the genome itself, which falls squarely in line with that patent claim, you can get it at, at, at ATCC. Uh, and that's a company that it's a biobank. And uh, when I download, I've, I've ordered that thing before. I uh, used it to develop a PCR test. Uh, and I don't remember there being any licenses or any literature citing that particular patent. So I don't think it's actually playing a role in hindering research in uh, SARS-CoV-2. Now, the CDC did a lot of other stuff to hinder research in the field. It just yeah. wasn't this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bumbled the PCR test to begin with so that, you know, a lot of people were kind of holding their breath thinking they were going to do all the testing and then the, the kid had a contamination. Well, didn't they, bumbled. didn't, didn't they also prohibit any, any other labs from, um, I, I know there were some labs that developed PCR tests, but didn't they prohibit using them publicly or, or um, yeah, very, very early on, it wasn't clear who could do the testing. And so yeah. um, the CDC relinquished um, the testing because they had fumbled the kit and under pressure, they said, fine, others can do it. Um, and then, Beyond that, um, they also put in place this need to get it emergency youth authorized, which meant you had to go through the FDA. And then you also had to be a high complexity CLIA lab. So they, they really suffocated it through like three different forms of, of regulatory crap. Um, 
but I, you know, I don't know how how heavily we can blame that on the CDC, other than them, you know, suggesting they were going to handle the whole thing with all the testing and and uh, right. Well, know, they delayed things. Hong Kong got running on this faster than we did. And how did they? Did they? Um, South Korea did. Sorry, not Hong Kong. Um, yeah, South Korea. Yes, yes. And do you know much about um, how? I, I know that in the hosp- the hospital situation in in South Korea is very different. It's much more private. Like ninety percent of the hospitals in South Korea are right. privately owned. Right. Is that does that carry over to to the development of testing too? Was that centralized or was that a lot of different I companies? I don't know. I just, I, I noticed that they were up and running instantly and there was no, it was, was nothing fast. Falling down and uh, they got their PCR capacity up faster than the United States because all the U S companies were forced to get these EUAs filed before they could start selling them. Right. It right. Probably cost them a month or two. And so the pandemic, I think at that point got ahead of them. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I did hear that as well. That that the 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 nature of the testing in, or just the hospital system in in South Korea was much more privatized, and there was a lot more um, freedom to run around and, and and find find hospitals that would test or not test depending on your preferences. Interesting, interesting. So so basically, what you're saying is that um, so getting back getting back to David Martin, the the claim that the Bar- the Barrick patent um, was sort of engineered in order to control. To, to have a, a lock on the research of this genome, you're saying that doesn't really hold water because it's available, it's out there, anybody can... Well, the, the CDC patent is different than the Barrick patent. Um, okay. He was tying those two together, that the two were in some type of collusion and inter- interlocking directorates. And I, I don't have... Maybe he's got more evidence for that, but I, I did, certainly didn't see it in the video. I've gone through his dossier to try and find some of those things. And I, I didn't see any like legal agreement between the two that would necessarily... Um, um, that would necessarily prove that, but uh, just on the patents alone, he he did. There is a Barrick patent that I pulled up, um, listed in his dossier that speaks to a way of assembling um, these genomes. So it's it's a method of basically, if you want to modify this thing, it's a method of kind of cutting and pasting the genome apart and putting together in, in, in sort of as a different like Lego system, if you will. Uh, and that system used restriction enzymes and ligases. These are enzymes that are known as restriction enzymes are like scissors. They cut up particular sequences and ligases will glue them back together. Uh, well, that's, that's one way to do it, but there's uh, multiple other ways to do that type of cutting and pasting with molecular biology. So I, his patent doesn't, it looks like it's easy, easy to navigate. So I wouldn't see that as slowing anybody down. They would just use a different method. Okay. Um, I put a, I put a few of those methods up on our, um, on our Twitter feed because I'm familiar with them. We use those before, um, with a solid sequencer that we built, uh, there are ways of doing this with Nick, a process known as Nick translation, where you don't use a restriction enzyme that entirely clips the genome. You use something that single strand makes single strand cuts, and then you can use polymerases to fill them in instead of ligases. And, and that would, um, navigate the Barrick patent on, on doing these assemblies. So, Okay. Um, so it's not a necessary that, so. piece of doing the research anyway. It's yeah, it's a tool and there's a, you know, it's like, you know, they got a patent on a particular, you know, Phillips head and you can use a flathead, you know, it, there's, mm-hmm. there's a different way to, to get it. So it may have slowed someone down a little bit, I suppose, but um, a, a lot of the researchers in this field don't read the patent literature and navigate them. They only do that when they, do, when they get to the commercialization stage and then they realize, Oh, wait a minute, Barrick has a patent out here. If I'm going to commercialize this, now I've got to go and, readjust things so I don't step on his patents. But there, there's usually um, a fair amount of freedom to to play with these things that are in the patented space if you're in a research setting. Um, so the, the, there's some fair use there that I, I don't think would have slowed a lot of researchers down. Okay. Okay. What about, um, 
What about sort of his larger claim? Um, and again, I'm going from the video. I haven't looked at his documentation that I think you've sort of dug into more. What about his larger claim that SARS-CoV-2 is not a novel coronavirus be- based on his looking at these patents, that there are all these yeah, I patents? Think a, I think he's got a point there and, and that the, the novelty of this I've always questioned um, and that, mm-hmm. you know, the SARS-CoV-2 really is, is like a shuffling event where people have taken pieces of other coronaviruses and stitched them together. Now, there's a hot debate whether that was done naturally or whether it was done in the lab. And I don't think it necessarily matters because from an immunology standpoint, our, our, our immune systems have seen pieces of this virus before. And so whether a human shuffled it or a bat shuffled it is somewhat a blame game. But um, it doesn't change the fact that we've, we probably have some pre-existing immunity to these things, and we don't need to be frightened by the term novel. Um, and that, I think that was weaponized to get everybody to panic and accept a lot of these lockdowns. Uh, but in, in the end of the day, you start looking at the T-cell data and you start looking at, um, there's even a paper out today I was just circulating that they're, they're finding fragments of CMV and influenza that were even conferring T-cell immunity to SARS-CoV-2. So not, not even in a coronavirus family, mm. they're finding epitopes that, that can drive T-cell uh, recognition of SARS-CoV-2. So wow. um, yeah, I'm in agree with David that the novelty here is way overblown. And there is a deep history of people playing with these things. It did not start in 2019 or 2018 for that matter. It's, it really goes deep back into the 2000s of people playing around with these viruses and shuffling their pieces and parts to try and change them a little bit. Uh, and and Barrick is, is, is all over that and the CDC is a, a part of that as well. Uh, I'm just struggling to see that there's a strong legal case to go after them saying what they did was illegal because the patent is issued is still in force. And I think that's a legal waste of money. Uh, there's other places you should probably put the lawyers at. Right. Right. So the, the other, um, so there are a couple points about that. One is that he's, he seems to be making a stronger point than you even make about the novelty where he says, and sorry, I'm going to have to maybe dig through the notes a little bit, but um he says that, or he had, he identifies one attribute as being the sort of defining. Okay, so he's he's identifying the what he calls the ACE two receptor targeting mechanism as being the thing that makes SARS CoV two novel. Is well, he getting is that probably- right? Yeah, so the spike protein and the furin cleavage site is something that's fairly unique to this coronavirus when you look at it in its clade. Um, so that's something that it does look like it may have been snuck in there by 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 the act of man, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's I think that's also the argument behind a lot of the, the, the work that Drastic has done. Um, so this is not really any new revelation that David's bringing up. There's a group out there online called Drastic that has been studying this and been putting this information uh, forward uh, as evidence for why we believe it's a lab leak. And, and they really point to the furin cleavage site and the fact that that site is using a codon system that's really rarely ever found in coronaviruses. It looks like a someone just said, I need to get a couple arginines in here. And they looked up on the codon table and just picked the ones that are most frequently found in human and put them in there. But it turns out the coronaviruses tend to use a different codon for arginine than humans. And so it's kind of odd that there's two of these arginines side by side, CGG, CGGs, that are, in fact, that look very much like a human arginine coding system. So that, that, that has been, I think, the real smoking gun that it's probably lab manipulated. 
uh, and that somebody decided to insert the furin cleavage site into the SARS-CoV-2 genome to make it more infectious and give it a gain of function. Okay. Um, sorry, I'm going to have to go back into my notes again here because um, related to that, so, okay, so he, yeah, so he has that at, at 2008, he says that Ablinks, which is part of Sanofi, filed patents targeting the, the ACE2 receptor. Um, now, did he list those? I'm, I'm still trying to dig up some of the things he mentioned. Uh, it, it's, so the, I'm looking at the transcript from the video, and so it's, it's a little hard to, he does, he does list some of them, and I can, um, I can send yeah, you the transcript. I'll do digging through this. He does ha- his dossier does have a list of like a couple hundred of these. It's just hard to gauge which one he's speaking about in some of the transcripts that he's that he's in. Uh, so I've been trying to track some of those down just to see, you know, where. where okay, so let me. Right. I think this is the one. Let me just let me see if I can find this one. Um, yeah, I might just I might have to send this to you later, but it's because he does he does. Name there, there, a lot of that he has been mentioning. Um, on March 28th of 2019, I saw him mention in some London Real video where they and I've been trying to find that one because he claims in that patent there was some mention of a deliberate release. Um, yes, and so yeah. I, I've been trying to search through the USPTO on, um, you know, Moderna Therapeutics and Moderna looking, you know, using S protein and, and a couple of those words, and I've just I've come up with some blanks. So uh, I'm sure it's in his dossier. I just have to. I have to do. I, I didn't. I didn't initially dig very deep on that one. I just kind of touched the surface. Well, there um, are a lot of claims here. Um, you know, he because he he does. Uh, let's see. So is is it the March? Was this was this the Moderna? Pattern? Yeah, that's the one I, I I dug into last and just briefly looked into. Yeah. So uh, find anything that said deliberate release in it yet? So I. I and I, I don't know if it was an issued patent or a patent application, because when, when you go back only to, to 2019, it, the patent may, may not be issued yet. And it could right. be in the application stage. Right. Sometimes in the application stage, the assignee isn't tagged yet. They only You're not obligated to put the assignee on the patent until it issues. So sometimes okay. kind of hide who it's coming from uh, in, the, in the application phase. Okay, here, yeah, and here it is. So um, March of 2019... Uh, I'm just quoting from the from the transcript. Um, in March of 2019, for reasons that are not transparent, they, meaning Moderna, suddenly amended a series of rejected patent filings. Um, this is very bizarre behavior, but the amend they amended a number of patent filings to specifically make reference to an intentional or accidental release. And then he corrects himself and says, "I'm sorry, their term deliberate release of coronavirus." So yeah, this is he doesn't give the number of any of the patents, but these were these were patents that they amended. Yeah, in I, March I, of I, I never get too worried about patent amendments happen all the time. Okay, and be odd if that's the only thing they change to put in deliberate release. I, I agree with them. That's kind of weird. Yeah, that's what's. But I I don't get when I see patent amendments. It's that that's just uh, every patent gets amended at some point in, in, to address the examiner's concerns. Okay. Okay. Well, that's that's where the deliberate release language comes in, but it's. It's unclear what it what it says about the deliberate release. So um, I'll, I'll do a little more homework on that and see if I can find some more of this in his in his dossier. Uh, I, you know, I, I tried searching on those dates. I tried searching on Moderna. I tried searching on a few things. I didn't quite zero in on it, but I'll I'll see what we see if there's anything there we can find. Okay. Um, 
he also goes back to SARS-CoV-1. So in 2003, um, he, one of, one of the claims he makes about that is that, um, there was a patent filed for antiviral agents for, for SARS-CoV-1 that was filed three days after the patent on the virus itself was filed. So. Yes, I did look a little bit into that. So that is definitely fast. However, the genome was public and it was a global, like it was in the news. If you remember the SARS-1 thing, yeah. it was all over the place. Like this thing's coming to kill us. Uh, so I can imagine somebody the moment that patent uh, or, or the actual sequence goes public, which actually I think that it was public as early as April 14th um, from Marco Morrow. No, April 12th, actually. It was 4 a.m. April 12th is when Marco Morrow, I think, put it public. Okay, so that was before it was patented then. That was... Yes. Yeah, that oh, was before, okay. I think the patent was maybe in the 25th or 23rd or something, like maybe a week or so later they filed on the patent. And I think the therapeutic came out a few days after that. So somebody could throw together a very quick provisional or quick patent application on, hey, here's here's a hairbrain idea on how to fix this. or And mm -hmm. just because the sequence is public, that, that could happen. It'd be a really fast mover to do it. And presumably it would be from someone who's already had their radar on this thing and knew a lot about it. And so just waiting for the sequence come out, they just yeah. go gangbusters on it and file it. But it would be really awkward if that were filed before. <laughs> I would agree. Yeah. Yeah, um, that would be a little bit uh, like, oh, wow, how did they know? And um, but uh, it, it seems as if that's it's, it's possible that they could have just done a very you know quick submission on that one. OK, well. This may not be quite that smoking gun, but it but it does. So moving forward to SARS-CoV-2. Um, UNC Chapel Hill, NIAID, and Moderna began sequencing a spike protein vaccine in November of 2019, a month before any any outbreak. Um, let me see where that is. Sorry, this is there's a lot of stuff to go through here. Yeah, yeah. November 2019 is early, you know, but it's 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 again in that in that gray zone of you know the news got hang of this in December and. Um, you know, were, were other insiders aware of this potentially going on in November? It's it's possible. I mean, there, there's certainly evidence that it probably leaked earlier than that. Yeah, uh, that's, yes, uh, that's, that's, that's so they, sure. they may have just kept it under wraps or um, they may have thought it was something, you know, some other respiratory virus, but didn't quite have a grip on it. But yeah, I, I've not seen that exact patent either. So I, I don't want to uh, say yes or no on what David's doing, you know, m mentioning there because I'm, I'm shooting in the dark. Okay. And then what about his, his claim throughout this? And I'm going to, again, try and dig through and find out where he kind of backs this up more, but um, that SARS-CoV-1 was engineered. Uh, well, that's interesting. I didn't, I didn't hear that or read, read into that. So that's a, um, that's a possibility, I suppose, you know, that nothing should be off the table. It's early back then, 2003 for all of these tools, but the tools that, we had back then could do it. It's not like it was impossible. Synthetic biology was alive and well post human genome project in 2000. So um, it, it would have been a hell of a lot more work back then, but um, I don't know. Was he referring to any particular patent that demonstrated that? Or? So that's his, that's his kind of, um, you know, the, the, the quote that I pulled out that was sort of the, the most out there actually, you know, stating that it was engineered. And I'm just going to dig a little bit through here because he does he does talk about 
Um, he talks about some of the patents around SARS-CoV-1, and then he goes back and forth a lot. Um, let me just see. I have this dossier here. Let me see if I can pull it up. And, yeah. Um, the alleged outbreak that took place in China in 2002 gave rise to a very problematic April of 2003 filing. But that's not before. Oh yeah, that's just getting into the, the legality of the patent. Um, yeah, I'll see if I can if I can sort of piece together where where he's um, okay. Hang on. Yeah, so there's this, there's the April 28th, 2003 patent issued to Sequoia Pharmaceuticals, was issued in public and published before the CDC patent on coronavirus was actually allowed. So the degree to, so this is more about insider, insider information. The degree yeah, to, yeah. Ish, issuance wouldn't, I mean, it can be three years before patent issues from when it's, from when it's filed. So um, as, as long as, if Marco put the pub, the sequence out in, April 12th, 2003, then uh, that gives Sequoia, you know, plenty of time to play around with the therapeutic before anything actually issues. Okay. Okay. Um, I think so, I have, a, it looks like there's a grant here as well. April 28th, 2003, Sequoia pathogen response. Yep. Patent. I think I have that here. Yeah. yeah. That is, so that is for the readers who don't want to follow along. That is U.S. Patent 7151163. Yep, that's what he's got. Uh, but that's April 28, 2003. And that's important to know that the, public, the sequence actually became public on April 12th. So that gave them 14 days to throw together an application um, for um, some type of treatment. Um, now, let me just pull up that patent to make sure we have the dates right, because uh, it's not clear to me that he's... Uh, that the issuance date could be different than the filing date. And I want to make sure we have that clear here. Um, if folks are interested in looking this stuff up, you can go to uspto.gov. Um, there'll be a tab in there. Um, it's kind of a messy website to get through, but if you click on, on, on the patent tabs and do search for patents, uh, you'll see a tab down there that says um, how to search the, uh, the patent database. There are patent applications and there are pat issued patents. And those are, can differ in terms of their, the time, sometimes by three to five years. Um, there's a quick search button there that you can click on. And I'm just gonna type in um, the number here, which looks like it's, uh, you know, 7151163. And should bring you right to a patent from Ericsson. And yeah, so this didn't issue to December 19th, 2006, um, but has a filing date of April 28th, 2004. Okay, so that's actually mm -hmm. a year after 2003. Yeah. Now, you have to be a little careful sometimes. Yeah, there's, and so you can see there's a filing date in here, a related patent application, which is April 28th, 2003. So you got to go down to, sometimes these things have provisionals that then turn into full filings. And so they can, you got to, kind of track the, the history of this thing, but I do see an April 28, 2003 number on here. That's okay. um, probably the provisional. And okay, I think I remember looking up some of these peptide sequences. Uh, it's an antiviral molecule. 
against coronavirus molecule as a peptide linked to human serum. Okay, so this, yeah, so this is a patent that they could have derived quite just by having the DNA sequence alone. This wasn't okay. like they had to do any work it, with tissue culture or anything. They could have said, okay, here's the DNA sequence and we're going to try and design something, a peptide that might block something that comes off SARS-CoV-2. So this is something they could have fully pulled off um, in an in silica manner. Um, and, and, and I could see where they, they could sneak this in that quickly. Okay. Okay. So, so in other words, just depending on either the patent filing date or the patent approval date, it's not necessarily relevant. You don't necessarily have to have a patent issued on, on a sequence in order to work with it. Uh, yeah, right. So they, or I guess what I was trying to say here is the nature of their claim here, if you read it, is that it's just, they're, they're making claims to a particular peptide that might bind and interact with the SARS virus. And this, this peptide mm -hmm. is probably predicted off of in silica information from the genome itself. Okay. So if the genome was available two weeks before, they could have come up with this once they got the genome sequence confirmed and said, okay, here's a peptide that will dock to it. And we're going to file on that just to be extraordinarily fast. I, it's, it's a good thing to raise. Though. I'm glad he found this because this certainly is uh, of interest, you know, digging deeper into if there are any like, you know, corporate connections or any other types of business deals between Sequoia and everything else is it's, it's definitely a, a data point. That's not, you know, I don't, it's not worth totally dismissing. It's just, it is possible that they could have just gotten the DNA sequence two weeks earlier can't, you know, quickly come up with a peptide they thought would get in the way of it. Remember, this is like a global, there's just as much fear back then as there is now. Right, right. I can see someone who's close to this saying, okay, file on something quickly. This could be the, this could be the, um, uh, you know, the cure to it. Uh, but what's, what you'll notice in this patent is there isn't a lot of information about them having actually taken this and tried it in a laboratory and demonstrating that there's, there's actually inhibition going on. I mean, that would be amazing if they pulled that off in two weeks. Right. Right. Um, but what I'm seeing here is what seems to be mostly a in silica prediction of something that might, that, uh, that might behave. Okay. So they're patenting this concept doesn't mean they're putting it out on the market. The next they're trying to put it out on the market the next week. No, 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 no. They're probably just trying to make sure they have some cover. So if they invest in this and go down this road, um, they're not going to get fast followed and, and, uh, and beat to the punch. Okay. Okay. Um, I want to move back. I, so I will, I'm going to dig into this again and see if I can find the, where, where he backs up his claim about, about SARS-CoV-1. Um, and I'll, say something if I see it here, but, um, but in the meantime, he, he also. Oh, look at this. He, they do mention this patent, a new England journal of medicine, uh, issuance of this, of information on April 10th, 2003. So two days before Marco had the full genome, there must've been some partial sequence public that they gauged this off of. So, um, huh. that's an important point that, that, uh, the full genome sequence came out April 12th. Other parts of it were known prior to this and people could have begun designing off of partial sequence information. Okay. Okay, another claim that, that he makes, um, again, from the video, no such thing as the variants. There, there's, there's no such thing as, um, you know, the Delta variant. And, and yeah, I don't know what he was saying by that, because I, I rewinded that a few times to try to give him the benefit of the doubt on, on what he's trying to get across. I mean, I, I agree with him. They're scary. It's not variants. These are just meant to be public perception, um, you know, fear mongering. But 
I, I was baffled by his explanation that DNA assembly can give you whatever you want. Um, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but that's kind that of, is kind of what he said. But, yeah, that's that's kind of what I got out of that. I'm like, that's just not true. Um, there's, you know, just decades of of data on assembling sequences and with high fidelity and, and not making those making those kinds of mistakes. So, um, I didn't I didn't I didn't hit him too hard on that on my my Twitter feed on this because I figured he was shooting from the hip on that and and probably. Um, wasn't expecting to back it up much, but yeah. um, no, this, these things, these things mutate all the time and the DNA sequencing tools are completely capable of sequencing these. Um, there is one thing he may not be aware of is that while there can be misassemblies with some of these shorter read sequences that use, they, sh- they sequence a bunch of 150 base pair pieces of DNA and they use the computer to then piece the puzzle together. And yeah, you can make some mistakes in that reassembly process, but they're, they're, um, they're not doing that with even the Illumina sequencers, but that aside, they have PAC bio sequencers and Oxford nanopore sequencers that sequence the whole virus in one shot with no assembly. So there are even assembly-free methods to do this. The PAC bio ones are better because they don't need any error correction. The Oxford ones are getting better, but they still need a little bit of error correction. Uh, but it's not an assembly problem there. It's just really looking at patterns of having done it a hundred times and what's the consensus sequence when you've read the molecule a hundred times. Assembly is a little bit more error prone than, than error correcting the, the ONT reads because you, you've got like a million reads and you're, you have a, this million by a million combinatoric that you do to, to try and put the reads together to see which ones overlap with one another. And that's a little bit more prone to some mistakes, but there's no evidence the Delta variant's coming from that. I think the Delta variant's real um, and exists. Uh, it is not more virulent, it's more transmissible. And those two things, the news loves to conflate when yeah. they're in fact inversely correlated. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, it looks to me like it's a free vaccine. It's spreading everywhere and doesn't cause as much hospitalization. So great. Yeah. Um, but we're not hearing that from the news. We're hearing that everyone needs to be afraid of it because it's school time again and they want to get everyone masked up and, and vaxxed before they go to school. Yeah, yeah. Um. I, I mean, I, th- I think I, I think I agree with you. He was, so so this in, in the transcript, he was responding to a question, so he was kind of shooting from the hip. Um, yeah. But I kind of want to go on the tangent of the the whole um, the the scariants. I mean, why? What's your sense? Maybe just even just among people who are who are kind of paying attention, paying close attention to this. What's your sense of how people are responding to the scariant stuff? I mean, do, do you think there's a little bit of less credulity going on? I think that it's all psychological now that they want a majority of people to be on board with having taken the vax. Because I think once somebody psychologically takes the vax, they're more likely to defend what they've done. Yeah. And they're less likely to listen to news coming out, which will be coming out in the future, as to how horrific this vaccine is compared to every other vaccine that's ever issued. Yeah. Um, I mean, just whether you believe in VARES or not, um, you, it's it's a metric for how many adverse events we had prior to this. Yeah. And so I'm assuming the filtering going on in VARES hasn't radically changed from 2015 to 2020. And so if you just look at that as a baseline, the numbers are through the roof right now. Yeah. I mean, you you could argue that there's more, that there is more awareness of bears right now, but that's fair. Yeah, I, I I feel like in the general population, there's not a lot more. There, there's there, that's not enough to account for the for the astronomical rise in in reports. I don't think. I I don't think so either because the the somebody went through and did a study on this and like the number of submissions in bears 
um, they're, they're something like two thirds of them are from physicians or nurses. So it's yes. Just, yeah. You know, that was, that was me. So they, they, they actually used to post on, on theirs. It used to post where the reports were coming from and that stopped, uh, in several years ago that just stopped. It's no longer affairs, but I've got screenshots of it and it's, it shows, um, what is it like 30% come from medical practitioners? Um, 10%, I think come from patients and or family members. And then another like 7% come from, come from, um, other, but basically the bulk of those reports are coming from either medical practitioners, pharmaceutical companies, or state agencies that are that are conducting vaccine campaigns. So that's where the vast majority of those are coming from. And I, I don't see a high motivation for any of those individuals to be fabricating the reports. Right, especially since it's a federal crime to do so. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I've brought that up to a few people as well, and they're always like, well, has it ever been prosecuted? And I'm like, well, no, but no one's, I mean, l- let's flip this onto the PCR story. We don't have those things in place for falsely reporting a PCR positive death, right? Um, that we have an asymmetric, um, uh, risk here, I should say, um, sorry about that. We've, we have an asymmetric, uh, set of regulations here where if you're PCR positive after, if your death occurs after you've had a PCR test, it's easy to attribute that to coronavirus, but right, if it's right. Well, vax, and, it, and, and up to a certain, yeah. And, and, and in fact, I don't know if it still is, but it was required by the CDC guidelines to do so. Yeah. Yeah. So there, and there's a host of other things that are, I think uh, we've spoken about this before, but even in the hospitals, there's all these incentives in place for people to be billing these things uh, as coronavirus. There's less liability if they're coronavirus. There's there's all these economic pressures in place that are going to push higher diagnosis of cause of death with coronavirus. Whereas when you get, when you flip this over to the vaccines, all of that goes away and changes. Right. It's the complete opposite. Yeah. Yeah. Um, No, it's, it's not. I, I don't see why you would say the medical practitioners are now lying about submitting these VARES reports, but they were completely honest when it came to the PCR reporting. I mean, it's, it's, you can't have it both ways. Right, right, right. So uh, one thing I wanted to talk about is the whole, so, so you're opposed to intellectual property in, in well, probably intellectual property as a whole or, or just... Well, I'll say it's, it's it's part of the game that we play in the biotech space, and I don't like it, but I do have to file once in a while and stuff just to, in order to raise money and, and what have you. But I try not to do anything that's extraordinarily broad because um, in, in the end, I find that those patents usually mislead investors because you get a very broad patent that doesn't last in the marketplace because someone eventually challenges it. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I also just find it not to be very productive use of our, our research dollars, putting all this money into uh, filing patents and then fighting them out in, in the legal landscape. I'd rather have that money go into R&D making the next product than defending the last one. So I, I tend to do things differently than I did early in my career now. Earlier in my career, I, we were filing like mad on a lot of the DNA sequencers we built. And I, I washed a lot of those patents I think we burned probably 20 or 30 million on some of those estates and they ended up being in the the technology ended up being in the grave before some of those things issued. Uh, So there's just, it just opened up my eyes to the fact that you can, you can go overboard on these things Uh, from an intellectual property standpoint, though, I do have some concerns over, over ideas being scarce pieces of property that need protection. uh, Right. When you share ideas, you multiply them. You're not stealing someone's revenue when you share an idea, unless you have some preconceived notion that you deserve other people's money. Right. Um, So I I don't see them as property rights. Typically 
are, if we believe in this type of uh, Lockean property rights system, it's because we want to settle disputes civilly uh, without uh, disputes over scarce resources that might be rivalrous. Uh, and so you get, you have property rights and that tends to make civilizations grow and prosper much more than having people club each other over these things. Uh, but when you get an intellectual property, you start to realize that these ideas can be shared almost infinitely uh, and you don't lose by sharing it. It's not like uh, it's a mutually exclusive idea. Only I can use it and only you can use it. We can both use it at the same time. Uh, and you just have to figure out how to operate in that setting uh, to make money, knowing that other people can copy what you're doing. Um, and I think the music industry has done this to some regards. They know, they know copyright only has certain teeth and it's they're eroding by the day. And so some bands are you know, trying to change that by moving more to live concerts, which has been really unfortunate for them during coronavirus. Yeah. Because uh, they can't yeah. do that now. But um, I mean, the Grateful Dead pioneered a lot of the taping. They let the folks right. tape. And right. that spread the word far and wide about their music. And so in many ways, when you restrict information, you restrict your ideas, the virality of them decreases because you're hoarding that information and you may not be able to develop it as quickly as the whole world. So there's something to be said about taking an, uh, you know, some level of open source activity. So what, what I've been doing in, the, in like the last 10 years after I got kind of tired of all this patent mess was uh, we've been taking the approach of sequencing a lot of these medicinal genomes and putting them public. Uh, so that we can we can spur the innovation needed in particular sectors of the economy. You know, we did this in the cannabis field. We want the cannabis genome to be as wide open as possible. That way, everyone can play with it, and we don't end up with four thousand gene patents on the cannabis genome because that creates the mess that I experienced trying to clinically sequence uh, kids with with mitochondrial disease and epilepsy. Um, we recently did the same thing with psilocybe cubensis, which is known as magic mushroom. That these these are very very powerful tryptamine compounds that may even play a role in SARS. But um, if we end up in another patent thicket over um, these uh, these these genomes, then it's uh, I think it's going to slow everything down. So yeah, the, the reason why I gravitated to what David was speaking about is that I've spent a decade actually trying to prevent exactly what he's doing, and so I've I've just. I've, I've surrounded myself with that case law to understand how to actually navigate it and what, what methods we can be using in the lab to navigate anything post myriad. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's something that's dear to my heart, but um, I can't say I have a silver lining. I don't know that I would advise someone to start a biotech company that's absolutely patent free because I don't know that they'll exist for more than a year. Right. I mean, it, it seems like the, the reason and it's the same reason for, for copyright. It's why I copyright my, my writing it's defensive. It's so that somebody else right. can't claim it and, and then prevent you from working with it. Yeah. And that does happen. That happens quite a bit to the folks who become more open source about things. So someone mm -hmm. comes late, like Craig Wright and starts claiming he invented it all, you know? Yeah. So, uh, so then, a question about, about putting the, the can some of the can cannabis genomes and the magic mushroom genomes into the public domain. Uh, so based on what you said earlier about um, patent law and about the the changes from Myriad, um, wouldn't those not be subject to, to patents anyway because you haven't you haven't altered them? Yeah. So if the raw sequence alone wouldn't, but what what I think you will find, and we have seen in the cannabis space, um, is people are filing on particular cannabis plants. So you know we we file we because we, we they bred it. As they bred it, yeah. So we, we put public ChemDog, and when we did that, we filed a defensive patent where we filed it, sent all the data to the USPTO, and then abandoned the patent. Uh, huh. And that, that put it 
that was expensive to do. I, I, mm-hmm. I, we were debating on just putting it public and hoping the USPTO finds it, but that there's a risk in doing that and that the USPTO doesn't find the data and issues a patent and then you've got to fight it out later and it's more expensive to go and remind them through an ex parte re-exam that you right. missed this data we put public over here and you shouldn't have issued the patent. So the attorneys advised us, submit all of the data to them as a provisional patent so it's in their system and then they're liable if they miss it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, mm-hmm. and they're less likely to miss it. And then if you don't want that patent and don't plan to use it, just abandon it. But then it's still in their system as an abandoned patent and it will show up in all of their search reports. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did that, but then uh, that was a type one plant that made THC. So somebody filed on something that made uh, THC and CBD and had like, uh, you know, mercine, didn't have mercine as a dominant terpene. So a twist of what that genome was and that issued. All uh, right. So th- this is something to, re- I think, remind the audience on when David says you can't patent life, like it's happening every damn day. Uh, and, mm. and evidence of it in the USPTO, these cannabis patents, getting, there's probably a dozen of them now uh, that have issued and are in force. Uh, now, there is something very interesting about cannabis patents is that you can't get trademarks on cannabis because trademarks do have a requirement of legality. Uh-huh. You can't get patents on things that are illegal, like cannabis. They don't care about legality. Um, and yet so- these patents for the Genome are being, are being issued genome right now. I don't think anyone's going to try and prosecute them at a federal level because mm-hmm. they're legal. But once once they legalize this federally, they, they then have a, a patent state. They might be able to prosecute them at the state level, uh, which is really rarely ever done with patents. But they could probably go to Denver or California and maybe enforce them to some degree. Mm-hmm. Some of that is happening in the in the cannabis space. There are there's another patent out there about extracting up to like 95% cannabinoids. Uh, and that one is gone through, is going through a Denver court process right now to go after people making certain vape pens. Uh, but it, it's, uh, it, it, they, they don't want those patents to get graduated to a federal hearing because the federal court will throw out the case. Right because now. it's illegal. Because it's illegal. Yeah. yeah. And, and just to be clear, the reason that they're, that those patents are, are, getting approved anyway is because somebody has somebody has actively bred this strain yes. and that counts as exactly making a change yes. that, that just seems like actually, a very broad interpretation it is a very broad interpretation and there's three different ways to do it in cannabis too you can file plant patents which only last 14 years but they only cover asexually or cloned versions of the plant so you know, those are really easy to get around. You just breed out of, you, you, you hop it one generation and you're outside of the patent. But nevertheless, that covers a lot of people who are in the nursery business, who their job is to basically make millions of clones of a particular mother line so that they can get a really reproducible grow. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they like to pursue a lot of these plant patents. Um, there's a USDA way to protect seeds, uh, which is the, the Variety Protection Act. In that case, you got to send the USDA 3,000 seeds and they test them to see, they put them through a dust test, which looks at how distinct and unique and whether they breed true. That is, um, they can do that in hemp now, uh, but they can't do it on, on, on THC rich plants. So right. the, the, the CBD market might be you know, playing around with that. And then the utility patents are the broadest ones where they, they breed something unique or they think it's unique. And that's that's where I think it gets really muddy in the cannabis space is that the USPTO isn't very good at searching what's unique in the cannabis space because most of the websites are behind paywalls or behind are you 21 or older types of tags. So, uh, or they're censored, right? So the USPTO mm-hmm. doesn't have a good record of what's been bred in the past. Uh, and the language mm-hmm. that the USPTO uses to monitor these things is one that a lot of the growers aren't using. I mean, they're, they're, they look at genotypes and chemotypes, things that require expensive equipment to monitor, whereas the growers are taking pictures and put it on Instagram, you know, so that they, they, they're not communicating in the same metric system. Yeah. So 
the USPTO's eyes, everything's novel, even though it's been read before. Um, so a lot of them are sneaking through under that guise and, uh, they might get challenged later in the future, but, um, but yeah, so our, our interest in getting some of them public is that we don't want anything as broad as what you saw the CDC do, which is, you know, we own the whole damn genome. Uh, and, and if that were the case in cannabis, it'd, it'd be a mess. They're, what people are doing in both fields in psilocybin and cannabis is they're taking the genes. Once you have the genome sequenced, you get a better understanding of which genes are responsible for making the compounds of interest. And the first thing people want to do is cut and paste those out of the plant and put them into something like yeast. So you can brew it in beer and make it faster and cheaper, maybe. Mm. Um, so that's already happening on philosophy and cannabis. There's, there's, there's people who are a lot of business models out there to cut and paste these genes out of the plant and put them into other organisms to try to get them to uh, make a single molecule at very high purity. Um, it, it's a, uh, that, that arms race is a much, um, you get many more people entering that arms race when the genomes are public than if, than if one person owns the genome, they all have to go to that person to get a license and, and then start working on it. So, um, I don't think they would issue anything as broad as an entire genome out of a plant right now, unless it were a plant patent, uh, which would limit it to asexually reproduced um, clones. They, they would get, they, you can get them on this plant that has particular features that are unique and that we bred over time to achieve that. And uh, that, that gives them a fair amount of latitude to, to, to basically scoop up a lot. I mean, the, the one that issues very broad, any type two plant basically with no mercine is a really, really broad patent. Uh, and there's a lot of people in the cannabis space that are trying to challenge it. So one thing you said this is interesting, you said um, when there's more people working in that quote unquote arms race, uh, when, 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 the, when the, the data is public, when the genome is public, um, that kind of flies in the face of what we've been hearing for so many years from the pharmaceutical industry that they need this patent protection. They need to be able to have their intellectual property so that they can have enough money, you know, if they, if they, yeah, that's an excuse. That's, that's, just... that's always, it, it's always struck me, but how would you verify that? I mean, how would you, it, it's, it sounds like, you know, what you're saying that, you know, a lot of people are jumping in on this without necessarily. Well, their, their argument is a band-aid argument. It's like, we, we need this because the regulatory process is so expensive that by the time we get through mm -hmm. it, we get, as well, the, fix the regulatory system, right? Why yeah. does the regulatory system cost you $800 million? It doesn't, that doesn't mean it should justify you having, uh, be, being gifted this monopoly. Yeah. Um, and the other, the other arguments to this are, um, you can look at a lot of other industries that don't have intellectual property. Stephen Kinsella covers a lot of these, but you mm -hmm. can also look at some of the more open source software items that are out there like Linux. Linux is dominating the, the a lot of, not, not all, not, maybe not the laptop side of things, but certainly on server side, Linux has is, is, is got a monopoly. That's an open source tool that's spread faster than the closed source systems. So there are aspects. Now they had to figure out a different business model on how to sell it through Ubuntu or other, or other um, you know, distributions. But um, you know, that's, you know, the, the business model side of it's not, not the public's problem. That's up to the innovator to figure out how do you make money in light of this being an open source approach. Yeah. Um, so I, I think people will find ways to make money when, when they're, when they, when it's forced upon them that way, you know, when, when they're not give, giving out all these monopolies, but I, yeah, I don't for a second believe that, um, this regulatory system actually improves innovation. I think what you're seeing in, even in coronavirus, look at this last year, if you look at the open source compounds, they all got hammered on, but they were probably the first things that should have and could have been utilized early on in the pandemic. 
right? So we had hydroxychloroquine get choked out. We had ivermectin get choked out. These well, were all, they were choked they were out by, by deliberate effort and censorship and, and regulatory pressure too. I mean, Absolutely. And, and some people think this may have killed 400,000 people because yeah. of it. Right. You know, but those yeah. were ready to be repurposed drugs. The moment the pandemic hit, people were talking about hydroxychloroquine. I mean, Trump spoke about it, what, like February or something last year. Yeah. So it was early on and there was no shot of a vaccine being at the table. But what that whole regulatory system did is it favored the patented drugs because right. those are the things that can get money to the people like Fauci and Fauci, not, not, maybe not him directly, but, you know, that they have Moderna royalty. Right. Yeah. So they're interested in graduating compounds through the system that we know less about. The whole system is favors novelty. So it, yeah. it, you can't get patents on, on repurposed drugs. So they're going to go for novel, novel um, compounds that we don't know shit about and that we're going to take huge regulatory gambles and health gambles on. But the people who are making these decisions don't pay the price for any of their decisions. Right. Right. And so we, we lost ivermectin was off patent. Hydroxychloroquine was off patent. All of these generics basically were going to show promise and solve the problem sooner. And then it got, so I'd argue the actual patent system in this case makes everything worse. Yeah. It makes it better for yeah. two individuals, but it makes it worse for everybody around. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Um, Anything else you want to add about the David Martin? I feel like we've kind of just scratched it. Like there's a lot, more to dig into there, I'll, here. I'll more into it. Yeah, I, I only hit on the, the his first point because when he went to the Reiner Fulmic thing, he, he really started the conversation about the CDC doing something illegal. And I looked into that. I'm like, well, that's that's the wrong. He may have a lot of other good arguments, but that's the worst one to lead with. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. I don't I don't think you're going to get very far with trying to accuse them of having illegally filed the patent when the patent's still an issue and enforced today, and everyone else is doing the same same behavior. So right. it's not like some right. kind of a spooky anomaly that happened. And like, if it is in fact, he does believe it's illegal, it's happening ubiquitously. So um, they, they didn't do anything that was actually, uh, you know, out of the ordinary there. Um, yeah. There's a lot of other things they've done that are out of the ordinary. Right, right. Um, but uh, I, I'll go in a little deeper on some of the other, because he does bring up some interesting connections. I mean, the one thing David's doing a really good job is, is it's a very deep dive sweeping in all of these patents. But I do think when you do that, you can easily build a lot of these conspiratorial, you know, networks of people that are all maybe in, in collusion together when they're just not yet, and and you need maybe a little more evidence to prove that there's in fact a, a, a an intent to, to collude there. Yeah, I think the intent part is there. There, there's a lot of there's a lot there are a lot of statements he refers to and things that, you know, sure sound kind of nefarious, but as far as really, you know, proving that intent, showing that intent in a strong way, I, I don't. I don't think that's there, but again, I shouldn't say that without. Yeah. I don't want folks just to take a little caution on this. Cause I do, I do see it circulating quite a bit. Um, and my main concern in this, I've seen this a couple of times now in the last year where the, the quickest way that they will try to discredit an organization is to get one lunatic involved and, and then the whole thing blows up. Right. And I'm not saying Dave is a lunatic. I'm, I'm just saying that I've seen this happen in like, if you look at Americans, like, to, you know, front frontline doctors, right. Not that that woman was a lunatic either, but they predict they, they projected her as one, right. There was one, I think one physician in there that I, I think believed in some, some Bible magic or something. She came from, she came from Africa and you know, that's, there are, there are, Right. There are some cultural things that a lot of Americans would, would, you know, think, think are crazy, but yes, you're right. They, you know, they, they will, if there's any, any in any vulnerability, any, any sort of weakness or 
thing that, that they can point to, they've got an army of people ready to, to slam down they, on they, that. They, so, they blow them up. They, they did this to, um, what's his name, Byron Bridal, I think. The day after he he was on the news or he's on someone's podcast talking about how, uh, the data out of Japan showing the spike protein was leaking uh, and it was being exp- finding in, in multiple different tissues. The next day they had a hit site website of him. Wow. Uh, where wow. it was a mockery of him. Uh, it was like within 24 hours and they're trying to, you know, blow him up. Uh, we did see some of this happen in, in the group in Panda. There was a few individuals there that made some, you know, interesting connections between uh, syncytin, which is like this, uh, it's, it's an amino acid in the, in the spike protein that they thought might interact with a gene involved in like the human placenta. But it, it was a very loose connection. It was a short amino acid sequence. And, you know, they, I, it was only one of the many points that those people raised, but they used that one point to, to beat Mike Eden over the head um, and try and discredit all, all of um, Panda with that. And uh, a couple of the board members resigned, you know, it worked wow. to an extent because wow. they didn't want to be associated with, uh, you know, an anti-vax organization. And, Panda and they really went after him. Um, my God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So th- I, this is my, my only fear is, is that this person's getting a tremendous amount of airtime. And if there is anything like this, that the, uh, the team panic can pick on, they're going to blow him up. And everyone he's been speaking to is going to, you know, suffer the consequences going forward. So I'm not here trying to pick on David. I'm just trying to strengthen his arguments and uh, do it before they do. Yeah. Yeah. And as I said, you know, there's, there's more to dig into here. Um, and I'm, I'm actually going to reach out to him also and see I'd be happy to talk to him. On, on, on okay. This. Yeah. Okay. That, yeah, that would be great. That'd yeah. Be this awesome. is not meant to be a, a, a us versus them thing, but I think yeah. we largely agree on, on the malfeasance that's going on. Uh, just that, you know, the best way to tackle this, I think, there's only so many lawyers that are stepping forward. Uh, so we can't flood them with um, every angle uh, on this, right? I mean, I, I see this going on with Reiner is he's got uh, the whole spectrum of people who, who don't even think the virus exists yeah. that are on there to um, people that are talking about 5G. And and so, you know, you, you can't go after this problem, I think, with uh, accusing the other side of all of these things. You've got to very narrowly focus on the actual crimes that have been committed that you have the best evidence for and, right. uh, and right. try and wedge that piece in as best you can. And, um, I, you know, I just, uh, I'm not saying David's doing that. It's just, you can't have any arguments in there that are, that are going to be wasted. It's got to be airtight. It's yeah. It's, and it's, and it's gotta be airtight too. It's just, yeah. Makes sense. Thanks for coming on again. Um, right, I, th- yeah, I think we'll, we'll continue discussing this and I'll, and I'll keep you posted if I, if I hear yeah. back from him. Always so. good catching up, Rennie. Thanks. Yep. Thank you. Right, take care.